Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And joining us on the phone today is Scott Sanchez, Chief Innovation Officer at Nationwide, and James Staten, VP and Principal Analyst at Forrester, to discuss the process and progress of innovation at Nationwide. Welcome to both of you, gentlemen. Thanks so much. Thrilled to be here. So let's start, Scott, with you. Nationwide is a extraordinarily well-known brand. The company's been along for, for quite a long time. How does it feel to be the first chief innovation officer at a company that's 92 years old? feels two ways. One, it feels um, unneeded at times because Nationwide has a great history of innovation. But, you, you know, you added that 92 years in. Uh, we turn 108 years. And so in many ways, uh, what got us here won't get us there, if you will. And so I look at, in some ways, this job uh, and my job being part of, what does the next 100 years look like and how do we set that up? So it's both exciting and slightly frightening uh, all at the same time. And so... You know, innovation is one of those terms that's tossed around quite mightily in the marketplace. What does that mean to you and and to the folks at Nationwide? Yeah, you know, it's funny because it's one of the most important questions I ask even during the interview process is what does this word even mean to you? Um, And, you know, some people think of it as it's a new technology. Some people think of it as it's doing something no one's ever done. My definition and the definition we're using at Nationwide is how do we delight people by solving their needs in ways they can't imagine. And it basically says two things. One, it says solve people's needs, right? At the end of the day, regardless of how you do it, regardless of whether it's new or not new or whatnot, solve people's needs. But it also says they often can't tell you what they actually need. Uh, And what they actually need is what we have to figure out as innovators at the company. And so that's a big part of the way we try to think about it is how do we just solve our members' needs in new and different ways that really just helps set them and protect them for what they're trying to do. It seems like in the conversation we had preceding this, there was two big themes that at least caught my attention. One was the conviction of purpose, and the second one was the acknowledgement of disruption. They sort of coexist, which is how do we deliver against that extraordinarily important purpose in a market that underfoot is moving a lot of ground? Is that that how you think of your role as squaring those two pieces? Yeah, what I find interesting about the the purpose and the disruption words is, look, disruption is one another one of those words that everybody uses, uh, and you know exactly what does it mean? Um, for me, it means again solving people's needs and all of that, and we can talk more about that. The purpose is the thing that I've been just amazed at. This company, uh, you know, it actually started. Because in 1926, farmers felt they should uh, be interacted and pay a different rate on insurance than non-farmers. And so in some ways, this purpose has been part of our mission ever since the very beginning. And while it's much more than farmers now, I think we still have that desire to make people's lives better. And without getting you know, too mission-y on us, what I get excited about for my role and what we're trying to do is our umbrella of innovation is how do we protect what matters most to people? And so what that is doing for us is, one, it opens up things well beyond sort of our current businesses, but there's also a huge purpose and a mission. And I feel it every day that I've been here. It is much stronger than I expected. And so it's been very, very fun to be at a company that both wants to disrupt but has this larger purpose that's part of it. I think it gives you a little bit of an edge, maybe a lot of an edge, because it gives you a direction. Uh, And that, to me, is pretty exciting. So, James, the word disruption is overused, but how do you see those external dynamics in the market influencing any of the players 
what is coming to their front door in terms of things they need to deal with so that how they think of delivering on that purpose might be different? Well, it really does come down, um, as Scott said, to understanding and through doing the analysis to figure out what, you're, what you can do that can satisfy what your customers are needing now, but are also going to need off in the future. Um, and most companies really struggle with this because they are not customer obsessed. Um, and we've written quite a bit about the need to move from simply having data on your customers to using that data to drive insights and to draw conclusions like this to get you going forward. Because with all of the emerging technologies that are growing so fast in the industry today um, and all of the powerful use of artificial intelligence and machine learning we see in companies like Nationwide do, you have the ability now to really understand and build out the kinds of solutions that will satisfy these insights that you find if you do that research. But the real challenge and why disruption is such an important term here is that oftentimes these new initiatives and new solutions that we put in place can replace the value of what you have been offering to the customers in the past. Um, and when that happens, then you could be disrupting your own business. You could be disrupting the overall market that you're currently in. You could be disrupting an adjacent industry because the value you add extends your value into new categories and new areas. But when you go down these paths, be prepared for whoever feels like they're being disrupted to try to block you. And, and going back to that dynamic, it, it strikes me, Scott, back to your answer prior, that there's a sense of being customer obsessed, and that's important. But for a lot of firms, at least this is my take, they lose sense of what their purpose was because they go through the responses of the marketplace and they begin almost swatting the flies of how to handle the externalities and they might lose sight of who they are. So they sort of digitize a thing, but they don't digitize their soul, if you will. How does purpose begin to be sort of the rock in the storm? Well, and I'll bring it back. So I'll connect purpose to the customer obsession piece that James was talking about because I think it's I think they're one and the same. What I think big companies are great at is they create these amazing businesses and they protect them and they grow them and all of those things. The problem is as they do that, right? They start to believe they know more, and the future starts to change on them, and they see that as a threat. Right as and whatnot, and so I'll give you an example. I was out talking to um, uh, a man. I think his name was Eric. He lives in Columbus, and I was talking to him about retirement. And now, when you talk to people about retirement, if you're in the industry, right, everybody thinks about retirement plan, right, and how what's your number, right, and how much do you have in your 401k, and how much do you have here. If you're really customer obsessed, though, you think about retirement in their words. So I was talking to this guy, Eric. He was talking about his number and what he had in 401k. And then he leaned over and he said, Scott, you know what, what, what I really want, what my wife and I really want to do is we want to buy a bed and breakfast when we retire. And that becomes our retirement gig. Now, in the industry, you would never think about getting into helping them buy a bed and breakfast. And I'm not saying we're going to either. But what I am saying is this customer obsession, this disruption, if you can really open yourselves up to really listening what they're saying and what's underneath what they're saying, it gives you a different perspective. So all of a sudden, we may now think about retirement not just as retirement plan, but as all the things that are connected to retirement. And so my belief is that that customer obsession, sort of realizing that you don't know your customers as well as you think and you need to get out there and understand them, that can actually help you unlock the disruption because they can tell 
you the things that they're thinking about, right, as customers, and we just have to be willing to listen. And I think that's hard for an organization that prides itself on knowing their customers better than anyone. I haven't found that to be as true as I would have expected in most large organizations I've worked with. Yeah, I get the sense sometimes that when companies listen hard, there's two ways of listening hard. The first one is listening it for their Eric's words, you know, the way that Eric speaks and what he means by that. The other one is when you interpret it and you place it in, back into your segmentation or your personas and it fits neatly into the strategy you already had. Listening hard on the customer's terms is actually quite a skill. It's, it's, a, it's a real thing. I love that. The words we often use are you need to listen to understand, not listen to solve, not listen to validate. You just need to listen to understand when you go do this. The empathy word, getting as much empathy as we can. And if you're truly honest with yourself and you're open to that, you're, I, I, I always am amazed at what I learn from these customers we sit down and talk to. And, and for me, it feels like that's very much tied to the culture of the organization, right? How does that empathy emanate throughout the organization and the people that are working for Nationwide. So can you talk a little bit more about the culture aspect of Nationwide and and how you see it through your role? Yeah, you got it. And I'll just hit on, I'll keep hitting on what James talked about with customer obsession. You know, this company uh, since 1926 has been a member, we call them members, right? The members who own our policies or our programs or whatnot, uh, member focus that's really been a driving force um, and that's part of who we are. What, what I often say is Nationwide has this huge heart that cares, and you see it come out in our philanthropy, but you also see it come out in how we service, how we talk, how we engage people. So I would tell you there's a natural bias to really understand our members and our customers. However, in today's world, as James was saying, James was saying there's so much data, there's all of this that I would even say nationwide over the years, while it's still been a part of it, we've got to double down now. The, the world is changing, customers are changing. And so I think we can use that culture of caring, that culture of giving. And if we can tap into that and leverage that to want to learn more, I think we'll be strong. So I'll be honest with you, I'm excited about some of these strengths that this company has, right? Whether it's our brand, whether it's our culture, our caring culture, our desire for collaboration, the Midwest uh, sort of culture that we've got. I'm excited to take those out for a spin and to direct it into this customer obsession world. Um, we're already seeing good dividends. It's not like we weren't good before, but how do we double down on that? And I think our culture and our purpose can help us get to that next level. So I'm excited to see that play out. And maybe a question about the next five years in terms of innovation, which is from an automotive standpoint, we're looking at the ride sharing um, model sort of extend itself to broader broader levels of mobility. Ownership is down. How people think of going from place A to place B has already changed and will continue to change. On the property and casualty side, we're looking at global warming having an acute effect on the frequency and severity of storms and thusly damage. How do you sort of rejigger your company to some externalities about how, how people behave and what the, what the risks are while still maintaining that that ballast of culture and purpose so that there, there's there's no change in that mix right I, look it's not easy it is it is one of the hardest things to sort of balance because externally the way i think about our world is the three things that have kept companies like nationwide in business are all eroding right one was capital Right, and you've got to have a balance sheet as these natural disasters happen. We've got to pay out to our members to help them get whole. 
right? But capital is easier to get these days, right? Uh, I spent uh, 12 years in Silicon Valley. My gosh, capital is much easier to get than I think it ever has been before, right? That's one. Secondly is data, right? Now data, we used to, you know, we spent decades building algorithms and uh, underwriting principles and all of that sort of fun stuff to try to figure out what are proxies for risk. And now you have real-time data. And last is regulation. And we now have regulators leaning forward and saying, how can we help you innovate? Right? And so the three things externally that have kept us in business are all eroding to some degree. And so I think it's forced us to have to figure out how to change. I guess the way I think about it, you know, one of the questions I often get and sort of tease this up is, how do you bring innovation to a company that has a risk mindset? Because at the end of the day, Nationwide is all about managing risk. What I would tell you is what I'm trying to create, what we're trying to do, is how do we take the strengths we've got and leverage those into the innovation? So for me, innovation is about managing risk. What you want to do is de-risk things. You want to iterate, create prototypes, and learn before you launch, right? That is applying a risk mindset. So I, I would say what I'm trying to do is leverage some of those big strengths that I think are the culture and the purpose and that mindset and let, lean into those to help us innovate even more. Easy to say, but a much harder thing to do, but that's the journey we're on. You know, it does strike me that there's two things that are happening at the same time. One is protecting the customer and then protecting the bottom line. And again, some of the things happening outside market, the bottom line's hard to do. As I mean, just again, going back to the issue of, of storm severity. So your argument is that innovation allows you to sort of square that circle, if you will, to get it so that both can be done because I'm simply getting much more intelligent in real time about the nature and situation of risk, the nature and situation of policies. I'm protecting the customer in that situation while being mindful of what does it mean to sort of manage my financials. Yeah, I think that's right. And I would just add, I actually think there are three circles that have to be squared up, if you will. What most companies do okay at is the business circle and the technology circle. Right? Or said another way, feasibility and viability. What we're trying to add with this customer obsession approach to innovation, this customer-driven, also known as design thinking, is we're adding a third circle of the user or desirability. And so what I think we've got to do is create that intersection of desirability, feasibility, and viability. That's really how we articulate what an innovation is. Um, and so the good news is we've got a simple framework. The bad news is that's a much harder thing to do when you really think about it. But what drives us more than anything is not the business. It's not the technology. It's that user and that customer obsession. What I have found along the years, if you can find something that solves a need, usually you can figure out how to do it. And usually if you can do that, you can figure out how to make money at it. And so we're trying to flip to that de desirability, customer-driven way of innovation um, to supplement the other aspects we've got. It seems to me like one of the things that you're saying is that your members are participants in your business. So it's not just sort of co-creation as a method. It is actually their ability to inform you your next steps. Is that part of this, this dynamic you're trying to tap into is like how can they be participants to guide us? Yes, and not only participants, how can, and how can we engage them early and often, right? And, and, you know, it's interesting because so many companies say customer-obsessed, customers in the mission and whatnot, but what's, what's interesting is to really be customer-obsessed, I would argue, means you have to admit you don't really know all the answers and you have to get out there and get them. 
And so we spend time every week. My teams are out talking to real customers, prototyping with them, gaining empathy, being in their homes, watching them plan for retirement, watching them on phone calls. We are trying to learn as much as we can. They've got to be, they are mission critical to involve in this thing. The only challenge is they don't always know what they want. Right? It's hard for people to conceptualize a big innovation. So what we have to do is get out there, watch them, engage them, talk to them, and then come back and translate it to the things that really matter to them, and then go back out and test over and over and over again. Can I return back to a point you made earlier, Scott, in terms of the three pieces of data being capital, data, and then regulation, and focus on the, the business of data? And then, James, if you could weigh in on this, it would be great as well, is you know, one of the arguments that companies are becoming technology companies or data companies, however you want to phrase that, whether they like it or not, it's just the nature of the beast right now. And it's a different business model. It's a different way of working. How has Nationwide dealt with becoming, in part, a data or technology company? Yeah, great. I'm happy to answer and love James to weigh in uh, as well for other companies. So the reality is we've always been a data company. Right. I think that the way and that's one of the myths that I think is so interesting out there is, man, we were probably and and many companies like us, by the way, were data companies before there was a thing called big data. What I think is different. I, I think there are two things that are different. The way you collect the data, manage the data, the systems and all of that, I think, is one. And the second thing is there's a whole lot more data available now. So all of these proxies that we created, you know, a female age 47, uh, you know, who's had one wreck, how do you price her insurance? The proxies we created now have to get adjusted as we learn more real time. But for me, the thing that hasn't changed um, that I think gets missed a lot in this sort of world of data, it's not about the data. The data is interesting. It's the application and the action around the data that matters. So we do think a lot about data, but we think what we think a lot even more in innovation is how can we leverage data to solve the needs people have, including ourselves. So for me, that application of the data hasn't changed, and I feel like that gets lost a lot today. Um, a simple concept, but much harder uh, for large companies to activate on. But, James, I'd love your thoughts on, on what you're seeing. Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought that up because you're exactly right. Almost every company has more and more data than they have in the past, and they certainly have access to, if they choose, data from more and more third parties that help flesh out the full picture of what your customers are doing, um, how you're positioned in the market, and how you should go forward. Unfortunately, most companies use that data to reinforce their existing business and to be tactical about what other things they could do to satisfy their customer in the short term. And what they need to do, as you articulated so cleanly here, is they need to take that data and try to understand what is, that, what is the customer's change or evolution that's going on and where are they ultimately going. Um, and if we combine this with connecting directly with our customers, as you said, is a high priority for everybody on your team to do on a weekly basis, you can get from them where they're likely to be going. And from those conclusions of the data, now you can say, based on what we understand about them, based on what they say is the direction they're going, what can we conclude about where they actually are trying to go? And what are their needs going to be? And how could we evolve our position in the market to be the leader and provider of the services and capabilities that will actually help them get to that next level? And can we get them there faster? And can we get them there with higher value than they currently get today 
in what they view we can provide. And these are the kind of changes we have to make in terms of our data analysis, because if all we're doing is pulling this data together and saying, okay, looks like our products are still working, looks like we need some incremental changes, those are not going to help you be the leader in 2025, because there are startups and there are competitors who are becoming more customer obsessed, who are using the data in these other places. So if you're not doing it, don't think that nobody else in your industry is, and you're not going to have to worry about being digitally disrupted. If you're not building into your innovation strategy to be the digital disruptor yourself, be prepared for one of your competitors or one of the companies who you don't view as a competitor today but will be coming into your market to directly impact your business. So, James, you know, you're talking about this transition from having the data, using it wisely to actually applying it and maybe going to adjacent markets or what have you. So what's the blocker? for firms to do that today. I think everyone would agree in theory that's the right thing to do, but maybe most or some folks have not made that transition. Yeah, you're exactly right. And one of the biggest blockers is company culture. And is your company reflecting a tactical culture, one that is, as Scott mentioned, risk-oriented, and which you are very focused on the current business and the current capabilities you have? And that is why when someone suggests an, a new alternative way for us to go, that the company's like, well, wait, so now you're going to take budget away from our stuff that makes our quarterly goals so you can do something that might not even succeed in the future? Why would you do that? What you need to do is get the C-suites together and to recognize that every market is being disrupted and therefore we have to move beyond our traditional business and our tactical goals. And we have to embrace that building out some of these innovations they may not succeed right away, and so we have to embrace failure and embrace iteration of those things, and we have to try to move to an agile model that allows us to try multiple things. And then if once we find that they work, but we realize that they might impact our current business, but if we don't do it, we're not going to be the leader in this new category – you have to get the company comfortable with that change. And when we talk about the company culture, just getting your C-suite on board with that is not good enough. What we're finding through a lot of our discussions with companies who have tried to go down this innovation path, some that have succeeded, some that have not, is that they oftentimes find that, and, and our psychologists have written about this a lot, 85% of all people fear being disrupted. And that you will run into way below the C-suite executives. You'll have mid-level managers. You'll have regular employees who will see an innovation that is coming out and say, wait a second, this is going to pull 20% of my team away from our current efforts that we're doing. Why would we do this? And you have to really change the culture so that everyone at every level in the company understands what you're doing, why you're doing it, Yes, it's going to feel like disruption short term, but it's going to reposition us for leadership if we're successful. And the only way we're going to be successful is for those people that need to be involved in this project are given the charter to do so and are given new mechanisms to validate and verify that they are doing the right things to help this innovation go forward. Yeah, you you got it. Um, what we think about a lot, look, and the good news is we have the alignment at the C-suite without a doubt. Um, you know, I call it collaborative disruption. 
And what that means to me um, is, one, I'm leveraging one of the amazing strengths of the company of Nationwide, which is highly collaborative. Um, but I also want to use that collaboration to disrupt. So several times I have conversations with business unit presidents, and in the same breath that we're talking about a project that's going to help their business, I'm talking about a project that could disrupt their business. And those are both part of our portfolio. Uh, and so the way we talk about it a lot is not just at the C-suite, but how do you operationalize it, right? And so I've got a team. I've got three teams. One of my teams works closely with the business unit to help them drive innovation. Another of my teams works less closely with the business unit and is trying to disrupt them. And we're collaborative about that. We're transparent about that. Um, as much as we can be, and then that allows us almost a portfolio approach. You know, one of the things that I think businesses can be good at is helping them figure out where you place bets, um, right? They have all these strategic planning processes and committees and all of that. So what we talk about a lot is what does our portfolio of innovation look like? Some things that are complementary, some things that are disruptive, some things that are short-term, some things that are long-term. And what we really want is a balanced portfolio of things that, you know, not all of them are going to hit. But if some of them hit, some that are complementary, some that are disruptive, that's great, and that sets us up. So for me, yes, absolutely, you got to start with the C-suite alignment, but you've got to operationalize this thing as well. And I think that's where a lot of companies get stuck as they start to do this innovation work. And, and I'm so glad that you talked about that portfolio of innovations because that's really important because what we find in our research, we find that the majority of companies who claim to be doing innovation are really doing incremental change. They're digitizing their historical products. They're adding on some new capabilities, um, but they're really just incrementally improving on the products that they have right now. If they go down the path of disruption, they oftentimes do it in response to the digital disruptor who has already entered their market. Um, what they don't do as the priority is they don't be the innovator. And we see three parts of the portfolio that companies should focus on that position them for this leadership. One is net new business values within their existing customer base and around their current, current value. The second is to build out solutions that extend their assets and their company value into adjacent industries and directly disrupt that adjacent industry. And then they need to also be thinking long-term about what are these customers ultimately going to need, and if we apply emerging technologies that might take three to five years or longer to come out, can we create a net new value that completely transforms the value and gives them amazing new capabilities? Those are what are oftentimes called moonshots, and those are the in types of innovations that will definitely put you into a long-term market, market leadership position. I feel like you just looked at our portfolio, right? Is we have core, adjacent, and transformational sort of uh, aspects of our portfolio, and we want all of those pieces, right, um, in some sense, and that really matters. What was surprising to me uh, is people put uh, sort of a – a, a value judgment on those three, and they said, no, 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 I'm not doing core. We're doing a lot of transformational. Well, the point of those words is not one's better than the other. You actually need all three. We absolutely need innovation in the core. We've got a lot of it going in. We've got to do more. In fact, that's probably the way we're going to grow short to medium term. But we need investment in adjacent. We need innovation in, in transformational. So the answer is not one is better than the other. The answer is you need all three of those across time horizons, and that's what we're trying to bring up. 
So both of you made references to the insure tech market and some of the new digital folks stepping up. How much of going after innovation or going after transformation and others is premised on acquisition, premised on building new types of ecosystems and partnerships versus building it yourself? Yeah, it's a great question. I'll tell you how we're thinking about it nationwide. First is, and I get a lot of questions about, have you seen this startup? Have you seen this company? Have you seen this press release? Um, for good or for bad, I don't look at those things as what drives my strategy, right? What I go back to all the time is what are the customer needs? So even before I even think about the build buyer partner, what are the customer needs? Because there's so much noise out there. Um, and I saw this firsthand in Silicon Valley, and I've seen it in multiple industries. How do you determine the signal from the noise? That's sort of one piece of the answer. The second piece of the answer is all three. We've got, as we start to understand what the needs are, there are going to be times where we need to build that internally or internally connected to our systems, or maybe even internally not connected to our systems. There are times we're going to buy things. There are times we're going to partner things. One of my other teams is a ventures team. We've made 11 investments in start InsureTech and other uh, startup companies. Sometimes those are uh, companies we can use to do partnerships with. Other times they compete with some of the things we're already doing. And so what we're really trying to do is place our bets. So in the concept of the prodigal son, a lot of teams, whether they're doing it through acquisition or through builds, they stand up teams that aren't part of the core business day one. And ultimately, they'll come back into the core business. How have you handled the return path so that it's either that the core business doesn't kill them or there's not that friction that blows both teams up? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, and the short answer is we're still learning, I think, is, is the honesty. The reality is, um, you know, I've seen companies buy, buy companies uh, and they can make them too close to the core and it kills all the goodness. I've also seen a company to buy a startup and kept them too far away, right? Um, and so I think there's a balancing act. I don't know that there's any one answer. For me, again, it just sort of goes back to those customer needs. What is the best way we can deliver those customer needs um, as we think about it? So that's sort of, I think, one big part of it. I think the second big part is um, just understanding what we're good at and what we're not. One of the things, one of the principles we try to do as we think about even creating those teams is actually create a, a diverse team. So what I love to do is I love on my, you know, my five or six person pod teams, which is sort of our unit of work in most cases. I want some people who know the core business and some people who don't. I want some people who are new to Nationwide and some people who've been here a while. I want some people who are introverts, some who are extroverts. I want some early in their career, some late in their career. Believing that that diverse team can actually figure out the right outcome. So what I don't want to do is mandate from a business perspective what the right way to graduate them into the company is. It's going to all depend, which is why we actually have a step called incubation, which is where once we launch and we start it going, we start to see what can scale. And that incubation or graduation, sometimes it'll result in going back to core. Sometimes it'll actually stay in our emerging businesses group, uh, which is that collection of new and emerging businesses. Shoot, we may even spend some things out, right, completely separately from our company structure. I think it's going to really depend on how do we best meet those needs of customers. I love your comment about diversity because it strikes me that when innovation teams are stood up, you typically take the most enthusiastic people you can find. They're sort of self-selected in. And, but that doesn't really represent the full sense of the core business. And others, which I think you're hinting at, actually bring diverse teams in, which includes people that aren't inherently sort of enthusiastic. They're more cautious, and they best represent what happens later. 
And so it's not as if they're naysayers. They're actually bringing wisdom to the initial design because that's the reality on the ground. I think that's right. I'd rather have those conversations and debates and discussions early before we launch anything, right, as we're creating it, than later, right? It's a trick, though. It's a balancing act because you've got to create this ability for the teams to move forward and be optimistic about where they're going, but there's got to be a reality placed with them as well. And, you know, we, we sort of we really pay attention to those team dynamics. How do we create that emotional safety? We work a lot with our HR partners to work through that because while this work is um, super interesting, super exciting, it's hard. Right. It's hard, hard work. And I think that's unexpected for many people. Um, but it's also super rewarding when you when you get it right. So, you know, we've talked, obviously, a lot about innovation. So what is the best way or how is the best way to build a business model to encourage these innovations? And is there a timing element here as well? Yeah. So is there a timing model? You know, is there a timing piece to the business model? You know, what I would say is we talked about it a little bit earlier. For me, the big driving factor is desirability and that customer need. Once I start to understand that and conceptualize what it is that I'm building, right, a mobile app, a website, a coach, a person, an experience, then I can start to think about business models. But for me, it's really hard, especially in innovation. I can go out and test all kinds of different business models all day long, but if it isn't grounded in what the need really is and how they want to um, uh, sort of attack it or how they want to get value out of it, then it's really, really hard. I'll give you one example in in the retirement and financial advice world, which is much bigger than, than just nationwide. One of the things a lot of people think about, a lot of customers think about is what is the motive for this financial advisor to recommend this new product to me? Is it because it's the right thing or is it because they get some benefit or some kickback around it? And so that, for me, is a really interesting insight that needs to inform the business model. That being said, once I start to figure out what the need is and how to conceptualize it, I still need to be able to iterate not just the business model but the idea itself. So I guess my answer would be it needs to come not too early but not too late. And I hate to give that answer, but it's a driving force, but it's not the driving force, if that makes sense. James, what are are you seeing there? I love the comment about not too early, not too late, because that's the core of what I'm finding through all my research with other innovation organizations. You are exactly right, because you will be coming together and pulling these ideas forth and trying to verify them with the customer. That's going to require a fair amount of investment. Then you may iterate and uh, you know, do um, agile testing of different versions of this until you finally get the verification from them that this is indeed what they're looking for. If you put pressure on the team that they have to how to put a business plan in place place earlier in this process, that you're going to end up reinforcing that, okay, that first trial failed. No, I'm not going to renew your budget. That's not going to happen. So you want to have an overall budget for innovation that allows you to do these processes across multiple ideas. When you have had validation of the idea that now you understand the customer does want this, you know what they really need, you know what they want from this or what value they're going to get from it, that's the information you need to start putting in place the business plan. And you want to start with a business plan that says, okay, we're, we've, we've verified this is true, but that doesn't mean we're going to roll it out to all of our salespeople across the company to deliver. Let's make sure that we release this so that we can get truth about the validation. We know that we found five customers that really want this, 
but we need to verify that it's not just five, that it's, it's the, these thousand customers in these segments with this profile. That's what you want to fund to take it to the next level. And then when that works out well and you now say, yep, we were right, and, oh, we also learned that now these other 30,000 customers want it too, that's when you can then extend that business plan and keep going. And so for you, what you really want to make sure of is the timing. Um, and we're finding more often than not that – once the MVP has been validated, that is the time in which you want to start working on the business plans. This podcast focused on innovation at Nationwide, and we talked a lot about purpose, listening hard to the wisdom of customers, the disruption of digital, teaming with the business leaders, as you described, Scott, and the timing of business models and others. So from your chair, Scott, what what does it mean to others that are either just beginning early or in the middle of their own innovation journeys and working through all of those different human, data, digital, organizational dimensions? Yeah, you know, it's um I mean there's so many aspects to this, but the one I always come back to, um, you know, as much as we've talked about the innovation at nationwide, what I think about more is the innovators at nationwide. How do we come back to our culture? How do we teach people on my teams how to do this? How do we teach them to challenge the business, to have the right mindset, to be customer-focused, customer-obsessed? And then even beyond my teams and the teams I work with, how do we let all 33,000 associates at the company use some of these tactics? Not that everyone will be working on, you know, some big new whiz-bang thing. Uh, hopefully they will. But how do you do this in small ways? And what we're really trying to create is not just a couple big innovations that will drive the growth for the next couple years. We're really trying to set ourselves up for the next 100 years. And I think the only way I'm able to do that is by focusing on building and unleashing the innovators that we've got here. And so regardless of what you do, make sure you're investing and being mindful of uh, and developing those folks, because at the end of the day, that to me is what's going to set yourself up for the long term. So glad you brought that up because that's absolutely also one of the things we find is that when teams take create an innovation team and they isolate them from the rest of the company, they put themselves in a position where they don't get all the breadth of ideas and, uh, and concepts that they could do if they got everybody involved in that innovation culture. And it doesn't mean that everybody's idea is going to be great, but the more ideas you look at, the more options you have, the more opportunities you discover. And we're finding increasingly that companies are doing this not just with their own employees, but are also extending it to their ecosystem. And in many cases, extending it directly to their customers as well through their customer advisory boards and other efforts. That is great. Scott and James, thank you so much for your time and your thoughts today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.